everyone, and welcome to The Legend of Portalcast, a podcast dedicated to Avatar The Last Airbender, The Legend of Korra, and all things Avatar. I'm Colin, your main host. Uh, tonight, I am joined by Susan. Welcome back, Susan. <gasps> We're here. We're at the last two episodes of book two. Can you believe it? <laughs> I knew we'd get here again someday. I just wasn't sure when. <laughs> But I apologize for being absent for a while. Uh, it's been a little hectic here on the send with getting back into a new routine during COVID and school year. So it's uh, it's it's getting better, though, which is great. Kids are back in school. Do you have a lot to adjust to? We all have a lot to adjust to, but I feel like parents especially have a lot to adjust to because it has just been nothing but chaos and insanity. <laughs> That's at least what I hear from my sister. Kind of like we're going into the, last, into the last two, these last two episodes, just chaos and insanity. We should literally just title it that. One called chaos yeah. and the other one called insanity, because honestly, that's probably <laughs> the title. Truth, truth. Um, all right. Well, guys, thank you so much uh, for tuning in. Uh, tonight, we are starting off with episode 13 of book two, A Legend of Korra, Darkness Falls. We have no news for you. Before we kind of get into that, uh, no news yet, but you will hear from us when we do hear something, which hopefully will be soon. So, episode 13, Darkness Falls. This episode was written by Joshua Hamilton and directed by Colin Heck. Um, so, here we are, folks. Okay, can we st- Can we pause for a second? Episode, Darkness Falls, directed by a guy with the last name of Heck. Oh, well, Heck. Well, you know where this is going. Oh, Heck. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think, do you think, like, I feel bad for the guy. Right. I'm sorry. That was just, it was, it was low hanging fruit of a mom. You know, that's just literally, that's, it's a bad dad joke, but I just totally <laughs> stole it. Um, so last we left off, we found out that Vatu had been released. Unfortunately, Cora and Mako and Bolin were unable to fend off Unalak uh, from being able to, uh, or sorry, Mako and Bolin were unable to fend off Unalak as Korra tried to close the spirit portal. And thus, harmonic convergence happened, and Vatu was released, Rita Repulsa style, out of the Tree of Time. <laughs> I have to... It's time to take over this! After 10,000 years! <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so, we find out Vatu is out, and now... Things are not looking great. But Tenzin, Kaya, and Bumi have gone off to search for Janora. So we still got still got some good things happening. So we open up with Vatu hovering above and Unalak looking on with probably the most emotion that we've seen him with um, to this point. He looks ecstatic because uh, he's like, wow, finally all of this paid off, I guess. Uh, so Korra quickly dispatches Unalak. Uh, I mean, like, the the speed at which she does this is insane. Like, just Avatar State, boom, knocks him up, boom, just, like, yeets him back through the spirit portal, and it's just like, Mako, pull in. Just just give me time. Just give me time. <laughs> okay. Can we can we just pause for a second? Why was that not the first plan? I know, I know, right? <laughs> okay. With how Good. quickly it happened, you're just like, why? Okay, whatever. I'm here. I'm here. Well, I'm on the ride. The other, <laughs> I, I think the other side of this of this coin is too. You know, 
again, impetuousness of teenagers, like we don't think forward what we're capable of right away. We just kind of go in the moment typically. Mm-hmm. Yep. As Colin and I were talking before the, the we started recording, I actually showed Colin a picture of me in high school and I was like, she would not be the same person I am today. Like she would not have thought 20 steps ahead. She wouldn't think to pack things and have it ready to go. But like now that's kind of who I am. Like back then I would have been like, I'll sleep in my car if we can't get to Bon Jovi tonight. <laughs> Whatever. Now I'm like, we're going to a hotel. I got to book three hours in advance. We're good. That, that really is, I think, a theme that we really need to consider while we're talking about this episode is that a reminder that these are teenagers, at least Mako, Bolin, Cora. Like, this is a very important fact to consider because this episode in particular is a very, um, it is a very, de- like, divisive uh, episode when it comes to, like, some of the harsher critiques that uh, are leveraged towards Legend of Korra. And if they're not teenagers, they're still within that realm of before their, like, mid-20s where, I'm sorry, I I don't know many people in that, that time frame that were thinking ahead and thinking big. You know, Asami might have been one of the very few, but even she missed certain things at times because she was too focused on certain elements that she just didn't think about the world around her. And we've already said that Tenzin and Bumi have already totally taken off of Kaya to go find Janora. So that only adults here have just... Yep, they're gone. Like, (laughs) and I think this goes back to a bit of that. So, yeah. All right. And joining us now is Daniel. Hi, Daniel. Thank you so much for, uh, for hopping in. Hello, hello. Glad to be here. All right. So here we are. Um, Susan and I have already started kind of kicking off discussion, but we're not too not too deep into the episode. We're just talking about how, you know, Cora, Mako, and Bolin are doing their thing, and, you know, it's the teenagers off alone. So what could go wrong? We will see. <laughs> Absolutely everything. <laughs> Famous last yeah, words. Of right course. <laughs> Nothing could possibly go wrong with this group. What are you talking about? <laughs> so, uh, Korra sends Bolin and Mako to go basically fend off Unalak and say, just keep him away. I need to seal Vatu away here. And then we cut. And th- this episode is a, uh, it is a pinballing narrative between two principal plots. The first is... Uh, Korra versus Vatu slash Unalak. And the second is Tenzin, Kaya, and Bumi looking for Janora. Doesn't go anywhere else. It is just really clean back and forth. And it makes uh, the amount of kind of like pinballing that they do in this episode. Um, you get a lot all together. So we go to Tenzin, Kaya, and Bumi who are in the spirit world and they are arguing about how to find what's the best way to find Janora. Bumi suggests tracking <laughs> after which Kaya is just like, can you track? Do spirits even have footprints? <laughs> Kaya suggests meditation and Tenzin suggests a spirit guide. Uh, I don't know. What, where, where would you guys be in this situation? What, what do you think would be your, uh, your go-to if you were trying to find someone in the spirit world? What do you think your your go-to technique would be? I mean, probably definitely not tracking. <laughs> I, I don't I don't yeah. think that would end up very well. <laughs> but no, I've I've always been kind of kind of the middle ground between like Tenzin and Kaya, and I think 
that that method kind of stays true here like because it's, it's the spirit world things work differently you have you know you can find or feel or sense the energy so maybe you know sitting down and meditating would be helpful and beneficial and you would get some insight into at least like which direction to head uh, but on the other hand it's the spirit world if you can get a spirit to help that would be way better but notoriously we know that the spirits are hesitant when it comes to yes. outsiders and so it's a very big if. very yeah i mean like it's a huge if. um i kind of fall in between the idea of meditation and tracking surprisingly because i think daniel pointed this really out is that you're in the spirit world nothing really truly makes sense but you can get in touch with your inner like senses and your self abilities and possibly the energy that surrounds the individual that you've come to love or known if you meditate long enough on it the possibility that you could track the energy is maybe plausible in the spirit realm like you know we don't know how that really operates per se but almost like um the senshu remember you could it could smell like oh the shoe shoe. Like certain scents mm-hmm. yeah the mm-hmm. shoe like that's the same idea here is that maybe you kind of get the spirit of a shoe shoe and you can just find them via their energy <laughs> signal trail Mm-hmm. and then that that makes me wonder what type of janora energy signal trail looks like does it just have a big giant arrow pointing to her or is there like right what does it taste yeah. like <laughs> um probably probably fruit pies oh, yeah definitely <laughs> yeah i mean i i think i think i'd also kind of be where you're at daniel i'd probably be somewhere between meditation and spirit guide i'd probably lean closer to spirit guide because i would just be like this is completely i'm out of my depth and we need someone to show us where to go. <laughs> Unless you know someone that's already mm-hmm. there, or you, and we already know Tenzin has trouble accessing the spirit world. Like he just cannot get to that side. Um, but I think, and we already know they're hesitant to assist. Now, granted, all chaos is breaking loose, so maybe they're willing to assist right mm-hmm. now. But who knows? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, so they they go to try this uh this Tenzin method here they go and they go to talk to the spirit and we see it's like a little star inside of a dark hole and then it just like realizes that that's not really what we think it is it's not a star with a happy face it's in fact a giant spider spirit (laughs) and this spider spirit just chases them and they go they just like chases them off a cliff and there you go happy halloween yeah there you go Tis the season. Costume ideas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and at this point, Tenzin is just like, all right, it's official. We're lost. And, man, I don't know. I guess that that note hit a little different for me because I just rewatched uh, Blair Witch Project last night. And, man, all that movie is is like them getting lost. Whoa, 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 whoa. And that was a Pause. little trigger. Time out. You watched, you watched Blair Witch Project and you live in the woods? Are you trying to creep yourself out so you don't sleep? I, I'm in a house. I'm not hours? out in the woods. I'm in a house right now. <laughs> as long as I'm not out in the woods after I've watched that movie, so, I'm good to go. What I just heard is that your trash goes out before the sun goes down. Absolutely, it does. Because <laughs> I, I, I like I had I had like the TV. I had this like TV set up because we did it through um uh like. I did it through my stream last night and like I had a TV set up and normally we have like a little storage spot that I have to go outside and then go into. And I was like, yep, yeah, I'm, I'm going to leave that inside because I'm not putting that outside. I'm not going outside tonight. No, thank you. 
there's absolutely an element of of like horror in this journey that they go on and as the episode progresses we see that more and more i have a question and if if the writers had thought about this did they think about the idea of having those movers have like the horrors of the spirit realm like horror films because that would have been this spider would have been a feature in that film right you know just give varic time and i'm sure that that would have been uh that would have right. been part of it. <laughs> Too late. Do the thing. Yes. So uh, as we hop back to Korra, we see that she is clashing with Vatu. She is going in and out of the Avatar state while chunking away at the dark spirit. You know, we see that as she like hits him with this, like part of his like essence disappears, but he's always kind of patching himself back up. Then Vatu restrains Korra in vines as Mako and Bolin fend off Unalak's sneaky attack from the woods. I, I love, they're just like, they like are setting up barriers and he's just like throwing like ice daggers and like, just like, just uh, completely trying to surprise them. But I, I love that they're just like, they're holding the line and they're just still fending off these, you know, mysterious like attacks from Unalak, um, which is interesting that he doesn't even, he doesn't take a, a direct approach. I think it's a, it's a recognition and respect that like Bolin and Mako are like very strong benders. And that if he did try to go at them like toe to toe and like a full frontal assault, that they would be able to push him back. Yeah. I really liked that part because uh, it, it had been a little while since we saw the two of them actually bending together outside of like the pro bending arena. And, and so to actually see them, work in such close concert in an actual like real life perilous situation that was really interesting and i i do agree i think it was cool how they had unalak kind of display kind of an abundance of caution in his engagement with him because we know that he is a fantastically strong mender and and to have him be so hesitant to actually engage them fully it was a nice touch. I think it's it's really... So a lot of this whole thing is really been about the, the bonds we share and the connections and the um, almost the balance between our relationships. Yeah, Vatu and Unlock, and then you've also got his... And then you've also got like this whole, um, you know, the siblings all driving off each other. Korra is kind of in her own little world. Asami is trying to find a bond after she lost her dad. You got Varric and Julie doing their own thing up there. Um, but like for the most part, it's about the bonds. And I think it's really interesting that as a separate entity, Vatu is kind of backing off because as a bond, the brothers are stronger. I think that is really interesting. And we haven't seen the brothers together for a while. I think it's been really emphasized the entire season so far that when they're separated, they're not the same. They're not the same level they are when they're together because they are a pretty strong bond. They are brothers. They have that link. They have the connection, but on top of it, they love each other. They do really care about each other deep down. And we've seen that kind of come through like even back a few episodes when Maka was in jail and his brother came to came to him i mean it wasn't it wasn't to like throw it in his face that yeah you're in jail you're crazy it was more like he actually was legit concerned about it Mullen was concerned and you know i i i do see that here and i think it's it Bolin was searching for a relationship with friends and people 
but he realized very like around that episode is like i miss what we used to be i miss who we were i miss everything about it and he talks to asami and it's it's almost like that that gang relationship has to come back the the, the core team has to come back and i i think that's kind of what this is starting to get to with this scene when the brothers are fighting it's like when they're together they're much stronger than when they've been apart mm. this whole time absolutely <clears throat> and i think that that's that's a reinforced um throughout this season and it's especially going to be significant in next season as well because i think you know you're really spot on by saying that the like them being separate is like they're not nearly as strong separately but at the same time they also went through significant growth and change independently and then when they came back together it's i think even stronger than before because they're bringing all of this new experience and growth that they had which i think is a really interesting element of character development that we didn't necessarily get in uh last airbender season one or even just in last airbender because they didn't really go off on their own that much they were all pretty much together the entire time except for his class trip with zuko oh of course yes (laughs) yeah class trip with zuko but like i i agree with this because you know it's a very great episode about getting out of your comfort, getting out of your familiarity and finding yourself a little bit and then coming back and sharing that self and realizing that, you know, you can be apart, but at the same time, there is a piece of you that connects together. And I think you're right. I think that that's largely what this is. And I think it's great because we don't see it in just the young characters. We see it in the older characters too. Tenzin getting out of his comfort zone by staying at the temple and in Republic city you know, Kaya leaving the South Pole, leaving the whole, uh, almost like their comfort zone a little bit too, because she's got to, you know, she's got to be out, out in this whole thing. And Boomy kind of trying to find himself after being a general and dealing with some repressed um, feelings regarding his own siblings and his childhood. Yeah, I, I think they, they do a really good job of saying and showing, more importantly, that's you know, like growth isn't bad and, and change isn't bad. And I mean, like you're saying, like they all kind of had their own things going on separately and then they all come together, but the pieces still fit. They're different pieces and they're bigger than they were last time, but they still yeah. fit. And I think to just kind of piggyback with Daniel said, think about where the show is and who their audience was. They're, the, the audience had grown up a little bit by this point. Like, we had all grown into something else. We were at different points in our lives. And so the show was sort of grown a bit more to just fit the audience narrative. And they're trying to say, and I feel like it, what Daniel said is, like, you can you can grow and you can do different things, but the pieces will still fit. You'll still be able to come back to this. This is home. This is comfort. And I think that's kind of what it it's sort of being for people at the audience, too. Like, hey, you can go have your lives. You can grow up. Just remember, the fundamentals always still matter. Like your love for the show, your love for each other, your love, you know, for outside of things, it's still there, even if you go away. Was this their swan song to us? Is that what this is? Uh, they didn't think they were getting another season. They're like, oh crap, everyone just let them know we love them. <laughs> so we jump back to Tenzin and the other siblings, and they are still lost, but we get this really wonderful moment where as they are lost, convinced that they have uh kept going uh by the same mushroom each time and i love that the mushroom is just like it's just like it's like oh that 
that must have been talking. So it's like, no, I'm right here. And it was like such a matter of fact, just having a talking mushroom, like was, I don't know, like a, such Surfing. a, it's a nice, such a nice little callback to uh, last airbender. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, oh, absolutely. Not, right? But as they are lost, they are approached by Iroh. And I love that even though that they're lost and, you know, he has one of like the spirit foxes is uh, what helped find them. And, you know, he offers to lead them out of the spirit world, but they insist that they still have to find Jinora. And um, it's really interesting because Iroh offers this very like kind of cryptic response where he says, if you stay too long, you only end up you will sorry if you stay too long you will end up only where the lost will find you and it's such a like just very like mysterious line but it's the exact thing that he needed to hear Tenzin because when he hears this he immediately knows what to do and where to go and i i think that it's it's just a really good like kind of uh guide oracle motif that they are you know there to not necessarily like you know get them through like the next stage of things or anything like that like lead them hold their hand but to offer wisdom and have that wisdom interpreted by the characters based on what they know in order to move themselves forward i i really like that line because at first with the first when you heard it it just seems like another like iroism that like Zuko would come up with when he was lost and trying to figure out what to do. And he's like, what would uncle say? This is something that he would come up with. But then like, I mean, especially in retrospect, like as they're wandering through all the fog and whatnot. And, but then like, is that spark that, that, uh, Tenzin needed. And and it was like, Oh, good old Iroh. He does know what he's talking about. (laughs) So we get this moment. Now they're, they have kind of a renewed purpose, but then we bam, we're back to Korra. And Korra is beginning to put Vatu away with this bending prison. While Mako and Bolin get jumped by the twins. And Kevin, who couldn't join us tonight, wanted to make sure we said, hashtag twinning is winning. <laughs> That's going to be the hashtag for this yes. year, right? Hashtag twinning is winning. Because I agree wholeheartedly with this one. <laughs> so, but one thing that I wanted to point out, and I thought was very interesting, because like we... I. Listening back to our discussion of beginnings, it's not something that we brought up. And then I, I was I was watching this tonight. And the only reason I thought about this is because I have a little Avatar Ang Funko Pop that uh, Abigail got me. And it is him from the last Airbender finale. When he goes into the full Avatar state and he has those like orbs, like the orb of like elements around him where it's like the ring of fire, the ring of earth, the ring of water, and then the sphere of air kind of swirling all around him. It is this move that Korra uses to imprison Vatu and put him into the into the Tree of Time, which is also what Wan did as well, which I think is a very interesting um kind of uh it's an interesting callback because it shows the like how secure that kind of bending prison form is because Ozai was unable to touch Aang 
at all when he was in that form. He could not even get close to him. And if that's the form to keep Vatu like contained to put him in there, it has to be like it's it's the strongest move that I feel like an avatar can do. Yeah. At at first I remember when that was first a thing in The Last Airbender, it was I was kind of like, oh that's a cool, you know, way to use the elements and you know, it's a it's a good offense and defense and kind of like a on the fly type thing. But then after all of this, it it kind of got me wondering, like you were saying, like is this an actual like legit technique that's like imparted by the you know the spirits of the avatars? That this has such you know pristine symmetry and the the flow of energy is so perfect that it can contain something like Vatu. Mm. That's really interesting. You know what's interesting to think about as well? Uh, to kind of go onto that, where it's like this kind of very original Avatar move. You know, you brought it up. Juan did this to contain him before. And then we see it with Aang. And my thought becomes... You know, everything the Avatar does, it's been learned over time. And someone's taught it to him, or he's learned it, or, you know, whatever. But this is really, like, the first original Avatar move, right? That we know of. Because this is the first time we see, really, when Juan hits the Avatar stage, is when he makes this prison. So I wonder if like this is the original Avatar move and everything else that was built on it was literally built on kind of like how you have like, I hate saying this, but you have like a base of something and then everything is man-made that's on top of it, but you strip it down and go back to the roots and that's what's the, what's the key of the Avatar is the, the, just the beauty and the, and the pristine, what Daniel said about every one of those elements coming in and the way they're just in harmony and in sync with one another and building that strength and that relationship between them. I think that is like, that's what makes this so amazing is it's the quintessential avatar move. So Mako and Bolin, they get knocked out and uh, you know, not, not, not in a good spot right now as Korra is trying to finish the coup de gras for, uh, for Vatu here. But then we jump back to Tenzin, Kaya and Bumi. He leads them back to the spirit spider and ensures them this is, in fact, the way to find Janora. Um, and so they kind of go the, the spider out and the spider wraps them up in a web and then brings them to a valley filled with fog. And Kaya says, I thought it was taking us to a prison, to which Tenzin replies, this is a prison. It is the fog of lost souls. And then the spider just tosses them in and says they're never going to escape. <sighs> Setting up some very scary, spooky elements here. And especially, like, because you don't know exactly how Tenzin knows this yet. Um, we get a little bit more information later on. But they do a really good job of, like, gradually <clears throat> uncovering the information about this. So we jump back to Korra, um, who is... Which, can we stop for a second? This yeah. jump was, like, ridiculous. Like, yeah. you're like, oh, she's gonna do it. <laughs> Spider. What? Oh, my God. Where are they? Lost souls? What? Trapped what? for eternity. 
Cora putting Batu away. It's like it's just like it really is like just pinballing back and forth this entire time. You're like, whoa! Like you're getting you're, whiplash. Your emotions, your emotions are like this, and you're just in a storm of of chaos. You're like, Aah! for real though. Uh, Which I wish of, you guys could see me act just, this out for them. It was really <laughs> Um, I, it's, it's so easy to, when you're balancing multiple storylines and cutting back and forth to have that feeling of like just chaos and like, I don't know what's happening and we're over here and now we're over here and now we're over here, but it is just a testament to how amazing the writing is and the production of this show that like, while watching this, never once did I feel lost. I never felt overwhelmed by what was happening. It was... It was such a, a clear statement that like every, these things are happening simultaneously, and you know, showing you just enough of one thing to keep you up with it, and then switching back over to catch you back up with the other thing, and go a little bit in head, and then switching back over. I I I thought it was a very delicately handled pendulum of mm. action. Well, they kind of eased us into it all season with the bouncing around of storylines. We didn't know which one we were going to get this time mm-hmm. or if they were going to draw yeah. storylines. But like, it was almost like they set us up for that pinball. And every episode, if you notice, just a little bit faster does the, the bouncing happen. I, I went back and looked. Every episode, kind of like, I kind of just skimmed it, but the bounce happens a little faster each episode. Almost like they were prepping us for this wild pinball crazy run to the finish line uh, next two episodes and and honestly it's um i don't know it, i i go back and forth every time on this because i sometimes like feel like it was great but the other part of me is like emotionally just drained from how like quickly i had to bounce back and forth in my mind of what just happened oh gosh this thing's happening oh no like yeah like but i agree with daniel overall is that i deeply like the entire writing and the cinematography it just was beautiful here like you it was a good balance despite the fact that i had severe whiplash and probably needed to see a medical professional afterwards <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it goes you know we're, we're bouncing back and forth here and then as we go back to cora it is at the moment where she is about to put vatu away but then unalak strikes her with a jet stream of water and interrupts the imprisoning and cora is looking pretty rough at this point she has just been beaten back so many times but i love that we get to see this moment of bolin and mako managing to escape the twins as they're being dragged away you see as they both kind of come to consciousness they like look over at each other and all it is is a blink and a very slight nod from mako and then they immediately go into just this whole routine of being able to just like tumble away Bolin shoots two pillars of rocks to like shoot them backwards and then Mako just fires off two blasts to like cover their exit and you know that this was like a bread and butter like escape technique that they had done in the streets of Republic City mm-hmm. growing up uh-huh. I was wondering like how many times running away from the triple triad did we use this technique because they obviously know what they're doing cops triple triad a bunch of people yeah I'm pretty sure they use that quite a bit in their younger days. It's great because, you know, we're seeing that and it's like it is characteristic bending, which I think is really what you love to see um, from a character 
many episodes into either Last Airbender or Korra. You want to kind of see what is their stamp and like how is it that they really kind of like um, their flair on their bending and especially the two of them together, we really see this. Huge thing that I love watching in in Avatar. I've, I know I've beaten it to death in the past, but like the techniques and the minutia and the attention to detail that they put into the bending is just exemplified in what you just said. Like, because each each person has their own specific style of bending, and Mako and Bolin especially are kind of interesting because they appear very similar to each other in their styles, but are still distinctly firebending and earthbending, and it's it's so fun to watch. So, their moment of escape is great, <laughs> but it's like legitimately 20 seconds later that they just get imprisoned again. They hop through they hop through the spirit portal and then Eska and Desna come up behind them and just like shoop and encase them in ice. <laughs> it's just like all <laughs> you guys did so well until you didn't. <laughs> hey, so well. jump. Yep. <laughs> like, like they were like, oh we gotta wait. Oh <laughs> again, whiplash. Uh, and, and then it's at this point that with Mako and Bolin unable to help Korra, Korra down, beaten, Vatu fuses with Unalak. And this moment is a in, in crazy intense moment that like I love how much it does mirror like Juan's original fusing with Rava, but it feels like just more like a dark. monster. Yeah, and dark. Like, like sinister. It, mm-hmm. Also, time out real quick. Just for those of you listening to this podcast, we just had a fusion hot dance going on. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> just want to yes, let you all know yes. that. We're sitting over just here. Just, you know, as he said fusion, we all just started doing fusion hot dance. Like, yeah. Uh, so Vatu fuses with Unalak and then becomes this new dark avatar so Uh, i want to i want to bring up on this one that i feel like in any other series or episode or something this would have been the cliffhanger it would have ended on it would have left the audience stunned we would have been like oh my gosh and then they go into the next episode which they had but like the the timing here to not do it then is really interesting yeah I, I think at this point, because they have been showing us how bad things have gotten, it's just now at this point, Vat, uh, like Vatu and Unalak, it is, it is this train that is now completely out of control, and everyone is just scrambling to try and do anything not to not to stop it because they feel like they can't stop it now, just to slow it down, and it really does get to this point now where this like power that he is you know really engaging with and you know absorbing and becoming this dark avatar it feels different than any other villain too than we have seen thus far i think the closest thing that we could you know amount it to is ozai getting the power of the comet at the end of uh last airbender because at that point we know okay things are things are getting bad at this point and he is he is he is taking on a whole new strength that we're not ready for but even that though it was 
it was still it pales in comparison to this because even that like it was still just Ozai and like no matter how bad it got it was going to pass because when the comet left things would go back to the normal balance but this is an entirely different class of threat like if he wins here and now nothing is ever going to be the same yeah. so and then this was a real gamble on Vatu's part in my opinion because you have Juan had practiced several times over with having uh, the spirit go in and out of him and give him different powers at different times and take different ones. And then they'd actually practice slightly together at times, but it wasn't like an extended period. I mean, Fatu was really gambling that Unalak would be able to hold him mm. as a, as a, as a vessel. And mm-hmm. that is a straight up gamble. Like he just rolled, went all in on that. He said, all right, all the chips are in, let's go. Uh, this is my, this is my Hail Mary. But it's like now or never. Yeah. I mean, like, he kind of figured it's now or never now because it's harmonic convergence. This is my one time, my one shot. And, and I think that that's that's what we that's what we kind of missed out on when we we've talked about it in uh, previous episodes for book two was that we missed really this characterization of Unalak in his relationship with Vatu and what was it that he was doing in preparation for this and again if we would have if we would have seen like scenes of him you know doing some kind of like spirit bending within himself that like you know was causing like you know a different some kind of effect to him it would have been a very interesting transformation or it could have been even a like you said an even like bigger gamble that Vatu was taking here. Because the reason Korra can access the Avatar Spade, the reason why Aang could access the Avatar Spade, but he's my every other Avatar before that can access it, was that the spirit of Wong continuously passed on with Rava, kind of. And it was really Rava, really truly passing on. But like, there have been centuries of each person being able to hold Rava so that that vessel got stronger every time with being. It's almost like, I, I hate saying this, because it's going to sound awful, it's almost like a viral, dis- viral disease. Viral, the whole intention of a viral disease is not necessarily to kill the host, it's actually to prolong its life, and therefore every mutation is technically to keep your host alive a little bit longer, so that you can proliferate yourself out there in the world. So, i not saying Rava is a viral disease. <laughs> <Anyway>. <laughs> <laughs> but... It's the same idea, though, is that the idea is that Rob Average Trash try to keep the host alive a lot longer, try to keep the host alive a lot longer, try to make the body able to contain the vessel. Like, there was no lead up here. Batu literally just threw himself in and said, well, gambles on it. If she can do it, I can do it. Right? Anything you I can do, was, I can do. That was then. a lot of the motivation, I think. Like, this is what she does. Let's give it a try. <laughs> can't be that hard <laughs> i can do it too <sighs> and so you know it, it's it really is setting up a uh, a very interesting clash that we're going to be seeing but we hop back to tenzin kaya and boomy we're going to a very we're going coming from a very electrifying like high energy scene to something that's way more subdued which i think is also why the kind of back and forth of this narrative in this episode works and you know can still feel exhausting but isn't too exhausting because you're not going you're not at like full 100% energy the entire time yeah hold on 
It's, ah, they bought it with Matthew too. Oh my God, we're back in the storm swamp. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, it's like, you don't know what emotion you're supposed to be feeling mm-hmm. at that current juncture, but you know they're all there. Yeah. So as the siblings are lost in the fog, Tenzin explains that according to an ancient text, this fog itself is an actual spirit that infects the minds of prisoners to trap them in their greatest fear. They soon come across and uh, an old face none of them recognize. But we as the viewers do. As we hear the voice of Jason Isaacs, I am Zhao the Conqueror. Zhao the Moonslayer. I must capture the Avatar. And... I, I don't know about you guys, but I remember when I first saw that, I like I like screamed. I was I was, I I couldn't believe that they like included that in there because it was such a crazy like moment where you're like, oh, this is where Zhao is imprisoned. This is bad. This is really bad. <laughs> definitely definitely had a little moment there. Well, I think if you mess with the spirit world, that's kind of where you're gonna go. Like, you, you, it's, it's kind of like a warden, like, don't fuck with the spirits, dude. This is where we're going to send you. Because that's exactly what he did. He, he messed with the moon spirit, he killed the moon spirit, and then you may have to become the moon spirit. And it, it's it's interesting because he mistakes Tenzin for Aang in kind of like this state. And he kind of goes into a frenzy. And, you know, but then Boomy and Kai are able to kind of like tackle him aside and then just you have this moment where he's left in the fog and you just see like his silhouette just disappear in the fog. And it's so haunting. It's so good. And it sets such a tone for this place and what exactly Tenson, Kaya and Bumi have gotten themselves into. So, and the other question I have on this, and I, I go back to it every time I see this episode, I think about this scene is, you know, was he truly imprisoned there or or because Tenzin knows so much about his dad's journeys, his dad's adventures, and we've been talking about this and leading up to it almost all season about how Tenzin isn't quite balanced as he thinks he is. Is this really, and you said the fog traps you in your own fears. Is this Tenzin's fear that he, while people look at him and associate himself with his dad, he'll never be his own person. And, like, that always made me question whether or not he was actually there or if it was really Tenzin's fear sort of coming out a little bit to kind of test the water of how much does he fear this thing. Like, you know. I, yeah. I thought the same thing. And I the conclusion that I came up with is, is it's kind of both. It's this area, this fog is, is definitely it's some sort of, like, purgatorial limbo for these spirits that are been you know banished or sent or what have you but the chances of Zhao coming across Tenzin amidst all of these who knows how many thousands of spirits are so minutely astronomical that like there had to be some kind of intervention like Tenzin's own fear drew Zhao to him kind of thing yes like I like that. Along those lines. Like even if he was there, like Tenzin's beacon of fear in himself kind of like drew in those spirits a bit more that had interaction with his dad, possibly. Like, 
that's the only thing I could come up with. Like, cause I agree with Daniel on this. I think that's a perfect way to put it is that maybe it's a little bit of both column A and B like, but I, I never sat well with me, the idea that it was really him. And I think going back again and again, as we've been going back now that I, I, you know, I've been mentioning it before is that I don't feel like Tenzin's ever really been balanced and we're supposed to understand that. And I think this is just amplify. It's just emphasizing it more here, maybe. Yeah. But it's like you're not supposed to pick up right away as the viewer, possibly. Yeah. Definitely. Before they whiplash us. Again. <laughs> yeah. I just, well before we before we go, I just I as a a writing tool, the the idea of the this fog as a prison is so phenomenal and such a fantastic uh use of writing mechanics because everybody's afraid of being lost in the fog like no matter what they say there's some primal fear inside of people about just you can't see you don't know where you are sound is different inside of fog feel is different colors are different everything is different and and there, there's some primal part of people that are just terrified of being lost and alone inside of the fog. And to use that as this prison for wandering souls in the spirit world was just an absolutely inspired stroke of writing. And I loved every minute of it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I... I oh. Yeah, I mean, they they really knocked it out of the park with, like, the spirit world in this season. Like, that was 100%. You can uh, talk about different things that this season lacked, but, like, what it really bolstered was the overall lore and feel and just, like, environment of the spirit world. It just, like, completely expanded it in just as an original amount that the show did when it kind of... Uh, first showed us the spirit world. Yeah. Wow. I didn't even think about that as like a writing tool. That's impressive to think about. Like that is a key essential fear that most people have to think about almost every story, every like movie that tries to put you in that element of being worried and concerned always starts like a little bit of fog in the land or there's like some element to being like it's dark and creepy ah just wow that's that's and and like mentally too like one thing that i know a lot of people struggle with like mentally is you know there is a point in your life where you feel mentally in a fog and it's it's daunting because you don't know what your next move is you're confused you're scared you're it's just such a great tool. You're right, Daniel. Like I didn't even think about that going back now, but that is wow. Yeah. But they're lost in the fog, but Tenzin does what any smart Dungeons and Dragons player should always do is he ties a rope around everyone. So they don't get separated. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> don't split the party. Hold on. Hold on. I gotta do a check for this. Hold on. <laughs> Crap. That one. Oh, <laughs> you. Well, we yeah, lost you you fog. tried to tie the knot, and instead you just dropped the rope, and you just you're lost in the fog forever. I'm sorry, Susan. <laughs> uh, in in the the line Kevin wanted to share here too, it says Charles Bronson always has rope. Best line in the Boondock Saints. So, 
Oh my goodness. Uh, so we're, we're, we we shift back to Korra and Unalak. They're engaging in this epic avatar battle that Unalak seems to be at first taking the upper hand with. Um, he manages to trap Korra in a ravine. And as he opens up the earth and ice, he looks down towards her and she is looking up completely subdued. And he begins to like crush her and says give up and he's telling her that like there's no there's no way that she can do this and we see in Cora's eyes an acceptance where she she kind of does give up and it's this darkness that comes in that's suddenly interrupted by Rava's voice that is telling her that she cannot fail and that she must prevail and surges with energy surges with power and you know it's it's this really fascinating part because i think it's an echo back to the end of season 1 where cora after losing her bending everything except for air found herself at the edge of a cliff and thought about this idea of ending her own life so that a new avatar could come in and take her place. Seeing that who she is as an avatar, she didn't see her self-worth as she did before. And it's Aang's spirit that comes in and talks her down from that. And I think it's a really interesting and beautiful way to show that, yes, like the avatar state is meant to save you from like bodily harm, in like these like really dire consequences. But I think it's also proven to us that it's there for the avatar when they are losing hope themselves and they're giving up and so much of that battle that they're waging in their mind, they're losing the avatar state really kind of triggers for that as well. Yeah. And I, I think especially for Korra, that's kind of a revelation because like up till then she had just kind of used it whenever she wanted because she was really good at getting into it and the like just the power boost that it gave her bending like that was what she saw the avatar state as you know and after Tenzin yelling at her that the avatar state's not a rocket booster like (laughs) you would think it would kind of click in her head but but then to have this moment where like no matter how strong her bending is it's not enough but she still has, you know, the Avatar state and and the the experience and the the essence of what the Avatar is all standing behind her, and she has access to that. You know what I always think about when I when I view Avatar, especially this season, like we brought up the idea of the relationships and stuff. Being the Avatar must be somewhat lonely if you think about it, right? You're the most you're the most powerful person. You're ripped away, typically to go train for long periods of time. And yeah, in those rare instances where we've seen Avatar has been able to go on, have a family, we also saw from Aang's own personal family that oftentimes he wasn't there for them. And this is where we go back to, are they really crappy parents? Um, like, but I mean, it, it sort of reiterates the point that it might be somewhat lonely and maybe... I think part of being a part of the human race is not being alone. 
we saw that in Juan's time, they banded together. They had to band together as like these little tribal groups, sort of. And then they, they band together when they actually started getting nations and firebending and all these different turtles. But the part, the point here is you can't, you can't just go with a what. And I think that that is what the Avatar spirit is. It's like, it's, it's almost to make up for the fact that being the Avatar also means you have to sort of be alone to an extent. Um, because you, as a single person, just can't go it alone. There are times you need to talk to somebody, you need to be able to reach your hand out, you need to be able to get re help, you need to be able to be supported. And, you know, it, it's not, it's not bad to have that need, but as the avatar, you feel like because it's thrust upon you, maybe you're not allowed to have that need. And I think this is where the avatar state can be that support system that the avatar doesn't realize that you're okay. It's okay to have that need. It's okay. You know, as, as Korra's kind of power erupts outwards, this like just lava and fire and everything just erupts out of the ground as she fights Unalak once more, renewed in this strength and purpose. But then we go back to the siblings. And now we start to see that they are trapped in the fog and Kaya and Bumi are beginning to lose it. Now, this is a really interesting moment because the more I thought about it, the more it really creeped me out is that Boomy's greatest fear is genuinely. He believes he is being surrounded by cannibals and it's like kind of like you, you realize again, after we, we talked last episode, Kevin and I were, we're talking about how like, you know, when, when Boomy does this whole thing, frees them from the camp, manages to like, you know, use a flute to tame the spirit and does all of this stuff to be able to like free Cora and the crew. You start to think like, Oh, how much of his stories are actually true? Like, you know, how much are this? And then you see that like, Oh, if this is his greatest fear, then there's probably a damn good reason why he deflects with humor and all of these crazy stories all the time. Because if that is something that you went through, that's like, I, I can't even begin to fathom that. And it's crazy that that was shown. What as was his the rating on the show again? <laughs> right. The, I, I feel like that whole thing with him is, is very much, uh, like a PTSD thing. Like those weren't those weren't fears that the fog was conjuring. Those were memories. Yep. And you know, and similarly with Kaya, you know, she thinks that you know she doesn't recognize Tenzin and Bumi. She doesn't think that she has family. And it's interesting because her greatest fear is that like her family doesn't accept her and doesn't like that that she doesn't have this connection with them and you know we kind of find out that like kaya kind of went off on her own and it was hinted to as well earlier this season from tenzin that like she went off on her own and i think you know so much of when you are striking out on your own as a as a person like you really have to kind of leave your family behind to a degree in order to kind of find yourself and you know and it's this fear of just like oh did i complete like are are they no longer my family? And I think that that was a uh, two very like interesting understated moments of fear for them, but entirely believable as well. So they both untie themselves, and despite Tenzin's pleas, they scatter, and Tenzin is left alone in the fog. But then we jump back. 
we see Mako is now pleading with Eskandesna, just being like, your dad is literally becoming true evil. Like, why are you supporting him? Please. <laughs> like, <laughs> but then it is not these pleas, but it is Bolin's weeping that suddenly begins to alter and change perspectives. He confesses his love once more for Eska, saying that now that the world was going to end, they would never be able to be together. And it's this moment where it's like, you know, Bolin is just like weeping and it's just like, it's so emotional. And, you know, I even caught myself and we kind of get that joke later that like, is he, is this an act? Is he putting this Was he really a great actor? You got crappy lines? All along. It was the writing all along. You know, Eska is moved by this, frees them. And, um, you know, and Mako is just like, wow, that was some of your best acting yet. And Bolin's like, yeah, yeah, I was acting. And he's just like still crying. You're like, Bolin. Oh. And and then I love that it's punctuated with Desna being like, they will certainly perish. (laughs) You do wonder. It's like... It really brings a degree. Like, you wonder what Aubrey Plaza, reading that role, reading those lines, looked at that and said, I don't think she'd really do this. Like, you kind of wonder if she actually told them that. Because it does seem a little out of her character. But then again, it was sort of out of her character to chase him down and be like, you will surely be fine. Like, she, she felt so sure of herself throughout. And, like, it just crumbles. And she crumbles under that. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I, I think that she I think that she sees that he is he is actually being honest. And I think that that is what like w- what happens here that we get the sense that Bolin does feel this way. And I think that she sees this. And I think that it's like she's moved by this because when was the last time that someone has said that to her in that way? Definitely not her father. Definitely, like not whoa, anyone else. She's whoa. like been with probably. So who knows? Eska's having daddy issues because, like, I, oh no, not not, not at all. Just okay. no, we're we're just we're just talking like just any kind of like love or affection from anybody. Desna clearly does not show affection at all, and you know, and you Unalak definitely doesn't seem like he is. It's just it's all is Unalak yeah. capable and, of affection? Probably not. I don't know. We didn't get to see, and we never will see. <laughs> An interesting yeah, right? discussion for another day, perhaps. <laughs> so we 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 jump back to Korra and Unalak. They are continuing to clash until they are both bound together by their water bending. They kind of have this like singular stream coming from both of their arms that connects them, and they just get closer and closer. And then we get this moment where like Unalak's face just twitches. And it's so inhuman. And then suddenly Vatu's spirit emerges from his face and eyes. And the Foley work in this is just so haunting because it's these just like gross sounds of writhing and wriggling. And then suddenly Vatu's spirit just latches onto Korra's face and draws out Rava from her. Korra collapses and then... Rava is imprisoned and Vatu returns to Unalak. And this moment is really putting it at a, okay, she, she got infused by Rava to like get back into this and like, you know, try to like get out of the ice and have this moment. It's just like, oh, Vatu is now, this is like a finisher move here. 
this is like now we're down to business and as these stakes are just rising and rising then we go back to Tenzin in the fog and he is alone his siblings are gone and he just repeats his identity and purpose I am the son of Avatar Aang. I am the hope for future generations of airbenders. It's almost like a mantra that he is repeating this. But then we occasionally hear these lines of doubt where he's kind of speaking. It's just like, but but you're not. And it, it's it's this back and forth where he's just trying to exert his willpower. And then he collapses to his knees as he sees an old version of Aang. And he says... And he's never going to be like him. Tenzin says this to Aang. And then Aang says, you are right. You are not me. You are Tenzin. And Tenzin repeats this. And then says, I am not a reflection of my father. I am Tenzin. He repeats this again and again. And then the fog clears. And he is able to find Janora, Kaya, and Bumi. I want to take a moment to talk about this scene because I think it is hands down one of the most powerful scenes of this entire season and is such a huge character moment for Tenzin above anything else. For sure. Especially in light of what we were talking about earlier, how his, you know, the kind of the overriding feature of his character, this whole episode or episodic arc rather has been that you know he's when people look at him all they see is his dad and that's what he's expected to do and to be and to carry on but but then to finally have this just the spark of clarity that then spreads and ignites you know the the bonfire in him that is confidence and purpose and understanding of self to such a degree that he's able to find not only where he is in the fog, but who he is in the fog. And and that provides the linchpin for everything to move forwards. I think it's also a very common thing too, which is interesting. Like, again, this goes back to common fears and just growing. I think our commonality of fear is that we're either not going to live up to what our parents want us to be. We're not going to, or everyone's going to, he says, I'm not a reflection of my father. Well, almost everyone, if you live in an area where you're from a famous family or anything like that, everyone looks at you like a, just basically another version of your parents for the most part. And um, I think Colin you grew up in a, you and Daniel grew up in like a smaller town, right? Too? Like, I grew up in a very small town. Yep. <laughs> and everyone looked at me like, always like, oh, she's like her brothers, or oh, she's going to be like her mother. And then it wasn't until I got away and I made myself, I struck out on my own that I was able to kind of like shed that identity sort of a bit. And I think this is what we're seeing here is Tenzin finally, like you said, coming into his own and shedding off the, what people believe I should be, what I believe people believe I should be. And what I thought my father wanted me to be. And I think that's a big thing. So I think this is something that parents don't say enough to their kids is, you know, you be the person you need to be, you want to be in life. 
and know that we'll love and support you regardless. Like, I think kids naturally have this inclination to think, I need to make my parents proud. I need to be what they want me to be. I need to do good by them because they give me everything. But like, reality is, as a parent, and I think about this a lot because I have children of my own now, the biggest thing that we ever want for them is to just grow up, be happy, be healthy, love themselves, and just be a good person. Whatever they do or who they become, we'll be there and we'll support it and love them for it. And I think that's something that, you know, doesn't get said enough. And maybe that... Go <laughs> back to that. Wow, they were really terrible parents. They were supposed to be the Avatar and Katara. What happened? <laughs> um, that's a that's a whole other discussion. Like, what happened with their parents? Did they just get together too young? Like, I don't know. Um, you know, and I, I we think have a whole that's, that's a really good point, that. though. Just their parents. Oh, I know. Yeah. But like, this mm-hmm. is an interesting point of where he just sheds this identity of what he thought he should be, and it just becomes better for him. Mm-hmm. So. Definitely. And Kevin uh, also made a note here. It said this. He said this could be my favorite line of the season, but definitely this episode. Took Tenzin a bit to find his zen, but glad he found it. Um, you know, it's it really is very interesting that. Tenzin got to that point and it took being at this incredibly low point um echoing back to Avatar Aang's words to Korra at the end of book one when we're at our lowest point is when we often see you know when we are open to the greatest change and I think that that is a hundred percent what Tenzin is here for at this moment his daughter is missing the world is ending his siblings are gone based on his recommendation of where they go and yet he is still like remaining steadfast in this moment and still like having this moment. I think it's just such a testament to the strength of Tenzin's character. Um, I mean, it just, it really is. I, I think it's just what makes him such a fascinating character overall. And I think it makes him very believable to be Aang and Katara's son because so much of the two of them, what they went through and the times that they could have turned back or the times that they could have given up, they didn't. And I think that it really shows here in Tenzin. So for the final scene, we go back to the dueling avatars. Mako and Bolin try to stop Unalak as Coral lays helpless. And I mean, they are just instantly dispatched by Unalak. It's just, it's avatar level strength. As we have seen Korra and Aang deal with random minions before with their own avatar strength, Unalak just boom. Like, no, you guys are done. <laughs> and they're just knocked out. And then we see what is one of the most heartbreaking sequences of the series. As Unalak repeatedly strikes Rava as the visions of these past avatars begin to disappear one by one and then suddenly dozens at a time until one is gone and Unalak strikes the final blow. He begins to grow in size until he becomes a giant humanoid dark spirit as he announces 10,000 years of darkness begins. So, this scene in particular, I, I want to address it one 
just within and of itself, because I think it's a, a very important moment um, for this episode and for the series. But the other thing, too, that I want to consider and talk about is that, especially the more I've engaged with the fandom over the years, and when Korra came out, and especially the more that Korra's been around, and the more I've either been either on the subreddits or uh, through Twitter and Instagram, there is a really divisive like opinion about this loss of the Avatar lives before that there are people who genuinely blame Korra for this. And that's a whole can of worms to not even get into. But this is, it's a very, it's like it, it hits home because it's like, Oh, all of that stuff, everything from Aang and Kiyoshi and Yang Chen, like all of these, like Roku and everyone there that's gone now. And it's, an incredibly, I think, risky thing to do, but I think it's an incredibly brave thing to do as a writer to go that hard on this moment to also show the stakes. But I kind of want to get your guys' thoughts, again, from an episode perspective and storytelling, but then also what this means and kind of how you know you received that and how you digested that, especially the first time that you kind of saw that. Okay, so like, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, like, we're we're still in shock a little bit, too. Uh, I think like it would have been a great so hear me out. It would have been a great season finale to end that there, and then literally have an entire season of darkness and fighting against the darkness. And tr- I would have actually enjoyed that. I don't know why. Maybe I'm a sick person, but I think I would have enjoyed <laughs> watching them try to figure this out over a whole season rather than what we got. But that's that's me being me and me enjoying the fact of I like when I am also a big fan of Empire Strikes Back, which mm, my husband mm-hmm. absolutely hates that movie and he thinks and he thinks Return of the Jedi is better. But we're not even going to get into that. So my soul, my soul just ached. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my my favorite character is Azula. I so think you're right. There was I'm right there with <laughs> like, you. But I mean. like, this is like such a moment, like. It's almost the Azula moment where she was like, you were never even a player. Like, it's almost that moment where you feel that hope just die. And it is so good that you could have had a whole season around coming back from that hope being lost. Things feeling like the end. And just imagine a world tossed into chaos like this for a while. And what it would be like to come back from the chaos. Like, would you find spirits that didn't go dark, that help Korra go, like, trying to figure, solve this thing out? Like, so, like, I don't know. Like, I, maybe it's meant for some kind of fan fiction or something, but that would just be super interesting. Um, But, yeah, wow. You're just like, uh... I, I think that's literally where after you've been whiplashed around this episode so many times, you know, it, it's like, uh, what? I I agree. I think it was a really interesting uh, kind of almost coup de grace because, I mean, it's it's Avatar. Like, it's, it's a good, you know, for the most part, uh, lighthearted series and the good guys win and... 
But like then just to have this so definitive, decisive, like the period of darkness begins right now. It's like, what? That, that can't be right. Like they're, they're, we're missing something. There has to be something, but like, you know, as far as we know, that's, that's it. It's done. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I guess for me, I just, you're right. Like, it's like, it feels like it's like, what, what? And it, it shows the growth of a series too, which is, you know, from a kid's show where in 30 minutes as a bad guy, good guy, I can win her. But like here, it's the level of just the maturity of which the show has hit where you have this, this utter just defeat, deafening defeat feel of it. And maybe that's where they were going. But like, I, I don't know, like part of me just still wants that whole season, whether it's in darkness and chaos and, they they struggle like we always talk about this we felt like this season was rushed a little and i feel like here could have been like happening mid-season and then they have a second half of a season sort of be this climatic uh resolution where it's like the gathering of the forces in revoke city the last stand like i feel like this is more the empire strikes back moment i don't know i i i I don't know. I, I my personal opinion. I don't know if it would have worked mid season. I think honestly, what would have been effective is a time jump. This ends, and then suddenly we're years later, and you realize like, oh, this is what humanity is devolved but into. Like six months They're hiding later, out in or caves. Nine months later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, I could just like, that. But yeah, but it's like that. That's a really. It's a very interesting thought of like kind of you know what that would signal and where that would kind of go. But alas, I mean, we get this final episode, and that's not what we're not what we're going to necessarily see. But I think that you know destroying the past lives and having this be a definitive end to that again is I think like it really shows the seriousness of one the situation and two of okay, this isn't like all just roses. Like it's not just going to all end, you know, even if they win, there's still going to be some damage along the way. And I think that that goes very much in tune with uh, Korra's um, more reality uh, in terms of just like closer to a reality than it being necessarily a um, like as much of a fantasy. Uh, as like at last airbender was i i think the other thing i have trouble with is the show tried to show maturity throughout the entire season mm-hmm. of these complex feelings these complex characters and in this episode alone we've had incredibly complex uh emotions run throughout the entire episode and i think this is where i have that trouble with the the next episode even though i love i love this entire series don't get me wrong um but in real life, your emotions aren't as neatly packaged and wrapped up and as easy. And I think that destruction of those past lives was part of that, too. I think that's probably why I think a time jump would have been great is because I don't feel like the resolution should have come as quickly as it did for something so monumental and chaotic and terrifying. We wrap it up in a nice bow within 30 minutes Agreed. later. Like, Especially since we were just talking about like how lonely being the avatar is and but the the one thing that they have to hold on to is all of the 
the experience from their past and, and their past lives and all that wisdom, but now that's gone. And like, she doesn't have that anymore. How does she deal with that? What is, like, how is it different? How does it affect her? I, that would have been I would have loved really to see her fall for grace sort of there and just be like, oh my gosh, like, what do I do? And it's like, and then she comes to this moment of realization that the Avatar is not who you were before, but who, what you choose to do with it now would have been amazing. I would have just literally like, we would have all been like sitting in our chairs, excited. We would have been clapping for Korra. But like, I just, <laughs> well, yeah. The uh, the other side of it too, uh, you know, a really cool opportunity is that you you go in that kind of like that world of darkness that's happening there. You also see Unalak's perspective. Do you see regret? Do you see him watching the world that he was suddenly like a part of disappearing, being destroyed, and absolutely enveloped? Do you see Eska and Desna disappear and just? then he realizes those inner maybe emotions that he secretly had that we all don't believe he has because he's so corrupt by power. I don't know. But like, yeah, like, does he have regrets? Does he have, like, because we, again, talked about the idea of complex people in areas of gray and you're now presenting to us a one-dimensional character that's supposed to be the bad guy when you've been giving us gray characters all season. Yeah. Yeah. As, as Unalak is written, I... I don't think there would have been much, if any, remorse or regret. Like, we saw how easily he was ready to sacrifice uh, the twins just to get at his goal. And, like, those are his family. He's, like, who are you supposed to look out for if not your family? Uh, but and now he's even further gone beyond that point because of the whole dark avatar thing and the possession by vatu and like i i i like i agree i think he he lost a lot of depth at that point and kind of from this point on he's portrayed very one-dimensionally and i like i i feel like he would have just been like maha this is my dark world to rule over for the next ten thousand years i win and the be all I, end all. I, this is where it gets I get a little disappointed in the writing. Because we were given such a complex emotional character and idea and fundamental idea in the first season with Amon. Amon for yes, he was sort of doing bad things, but you think back on it, and it's like, was it really because it was self like it's weird. Like, so his like whole thing was very complex to get into and the grayness of the area, what he was portraying out there. Maybe I would have done like, the same yeah. thing. But like, <laughs> you get into this season, and the character is very the bad guy is one dimensional. We know he's the bad guy right away. But even like with Beric sort of being a bad guy, like he was grayish, and even Asami's dad was sort of grayish as a bad guy. Like you know, he was a secondary bad guy, but he was sort of grayish. And like then, at reasonable motives, like we could all be like, okay, yeah, that makes total sense. But like here, we had a very one dimensional. He's the bad guy. He's freaking evil and it was very 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 like just it felt so just not what we were expecting but then the next season they get back to this idea of having a bad guy who is very gray in its characterization and well, don't give away yeah. too much i'm not giving away too Daniel much but, hasn't seen it yet but but yeah but like <laughs> i i was really disappointed in the writing here because i agree like we could have had a time jump we could have had we could have had it a lot if Unalak had been able to have more of those those um 
that gray, we could have seen a lot more. And I think it would have been so, so good as a, as a viewer and as a story, because I liked that they presented us with such gray as a mature story. Whereas in Avatar Last Airbender, it was very by the book, black, white, black, white, black, white. And Zuko was probably the most gray of the characters, but you saw him wandering even in the beginning. But like, it's very black, white. Azula is obviously evil. Black, white. Obviously her dad is also evil. Black, white. Like, it wasn't like there was never that. And this is where this whole thing came. It's like Korra presented that opportunity for, well, maybe not everything is clear cut as we once thought it was as children. Ah, all right, guys. Well, that is going to conclude our discussion of episode 13, Darkness Falls. And man, did it fall. Darkness done fall. (laughs) It fell hard. Um, So, Susan, Daniel, thank you so much for joining me for this discussion. Yeah. Always a pleasure. Um, Yes. Uh, So uh, be sure to uh, stay tuned for next week, guys. Uh, We're going to be doing our final episode of book two, Legend of Korra. Episode 14, Light in the Dark. Um, but in the meantime, be sure to check us out on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Legend of Portalcast, on Twitter at Portalcast Pod. You can also visit our website at legendofportalcast.com. Or, hey, if you want to join in the conversation, you can join us on our Discord. You'll find a link in the show notes as well, or you can find that on our website at legendofportalcast.com. Um, guys, thank you so much for tuning in, and we can't wait to see you next time for the finale of book two, Light in the Dark. But until then, let us leave.